Good morning. It's been a joy to be here with you again this morning. I'm sure there's a ton of memories for my wife and all of the little church feel that goes with this little place. It's a beautiful time, and I just enjoyed hearing of all your, your things that have happened this week, the things you want to pray about, and things you want to praise God for. It's great. Continue to do that. The church community where I'm part of there at back home is a lot bigger setting, and I don't know if we'd get to preaching if we did it like this there. Maybe that would be good too. I don't know. It's just different, and I thank God for that. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And you're not dismissed now. <laughs> it's a beautiful couple verses and one we use sometimes as a benediction. It is a good benediction. But I'd like to think about these verses a little bit this morning. And the phrase in the verse 21 there, glory in the church, is the title of my message this morning. And I suppose that it's somewhat traditional, at least somewhere along the line I got this notion that it's somewhat traditional to preach about the church on Sunday mornings in revival meetings. I just want to tell you this morning, it's nothing traditional for me. The church is the most powerful organism in the earth, on the earth. And I just, I wish I saw more glory in the church. I'll just say that. Sometimes I think, I don't just think, I see so much strife and church trouble and church trauma and church splits and church fights and independence and worldliness. Where's the glory? Well, what is glory? Glory is a splendor, magnificence. We were reading this morning and studying about the preparation for Solomon's temple. Well, when that was done, it was magnificent. It was glorious. It sat on the hill there and glowed for the, as far as you could see. There was this beauty radiated out from it. So what is glory in the church? Is it stained glass windows and beautiful architecture, stone walls and beauty? Is that glory in the church? Is it attractive people? Pretty decent looking bunch this morning. Talented people, special unique gifts, talents in the church, maybe even those who are wealthy. Does that make the church glorious? Is it lots of people? Do more numbers make it more glorious? Is it mixed ages? Certainly it's a blessing to have children and young people and 
elderly people all together worshiping God. That's a beautiful thing. But is that glory? Is it gifted preachers or good singing or the list could go on of things that happen in the church, things that are part of the church? Is it having the right Bible verse behind you when you're preaching? Is that what makes it glorious? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer is here in verse 20. But let me first go back and just read verses 14 and on to verse 20. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. One of those sections of Scripture where Paul starts writing, and as the Spirit just fills him with this vision of the majesty and glory of what happens to the Christian, he just can't stop, and the sentence gets longer and longer and longer, and that's what he's talking about there, the the majestic privilege we have of being filled with His Spirit in the inner man, of knowing Christ in our hearts by faith, of this comprehension of the love of Christ, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Then it says, Now unto Him, that's unto God, that is able, there's a, there's a hint there in that little phrase, is able, of what it looks like or what glory in the church is. Is able is the concept, the idea that God has the full potential to bring about glory in the church. But just because He is able doesn't mean that it will happen. In other words, God's potential is there, but it's possible that man will do something so there is no glory in the church. So God is not forcing this glory upon us, but it is possible through Him. It says here that it is, He is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. It's not just all we ask. That would be incredible. You just ask for a bunch of things. God is able to do above all we ask. Not just above all we ask, but above all we ask or think. I was trying to figure out in my mind, what is above what I can think? Well, I couldn't think of anything that was above what I could think. <laughs> but there are those things. And God is able to do above what I can ask or think. Not, a, not only able to do above those things, but He's abundantly able to do above those things. Not just abundantly, but exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I don't know what comes into your mind now when you try to process that. Think about what would God need to do so that you would say that was one of those things that God did exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think. And I don't know about you, but I think about God changing circumstances. Curing someone of terminal cancer, that's one thing that I would think of. Or when God converts a sinner that we say, well, that person was just way out there, and all of a sudden he's transformed by the power of God. Or moving mountains, the idea that he would 
cure someone or change people or change circumstances. But what is, what is the Bible talking about here when he's talking about this, what brings glory in the church? Where does this exceeding abundant happen? Well, did you see what it says at the end of verse 20? Where does that power happen? According to the power that moves mountains, that cures illnesses. No, it says that worketh in us. Remember what I told you about ETH in the King James Version? Present continual action. Where is this exceeding abundant power that is above all we could ask or think? Right here. In the mirror. In you. That's where it is. And when God wants to bring glory in the church, it's because of His power working in us. That's His desire. And how does this glory happen? I would like to continue here into chapter 4. I'd like to notice seven things here related to this glory. Let me read from chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. In verse 1 here of chapter 4, Paul writing as a prisoner of the Lord because he was in prison. I hope you are also a prisoner of the Lord even while you are free, that you are committed solely to his his, his purposes. But he says here, he beseeches us or he begs us to walk worthy. We're not going to focus today on the walk so much directly, 
But the call here is that the way we order our steps, the way we walk in this world, is a way that is worthy of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That when people look at your life, when they hear the words you say, when they hear the music you play in your life, when they observe how you react to circumstances, that they say, yes, that makes sense. That person is a follower of Jesus. That our walk is worthy of his Lordship. And we could look a lot at the walk here. In fact, the rest of the chapter in chapter 4 that are where I stopped turns the focus again back to the walk and the walk of how it used to be of the Gentiles and how it ought to be as a Christian. And there's a lot of very practical things, he says, at the end of chapter 4. So there is a, a holy walk for the follower of Jesus where those looking on should expect to see a walk that is consistent with the person of the Lord Jesus. Beginning then here at verse 2, he turns his attention back to this concept of glory in the church. And he says here in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I would like to focus in this verse as the attitude of glory. It's the first thing I notice here. And it's maybe the most important thing we could spend the entire rest of the morning in this verse, and I don't think we spend too much time on it. But the plea here is that we would be those who are with all lowliness, first of all, he says. Lowliness is the idea to place oneself low in his own eyes, to be keenly aware of my own littleness. Are you keenly aware of your own littleness? This is the opposite of pride. You see, pride lifts up, elevates self. The work of God in the heart brings a person low to a place of neediness and recognition that they are not all that after all. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly or rightly, honestly, we're really not that significant. We're much lower than we think. This lowliness is so important. And maybe the greatest destruction of glory in the church is a little word, I. It manifests itself in so many ways. Its root is pride. So the attitude of glory includes lowliness. The attitude of glory also includes meekness. Meekness is that excellent disposition of the heart that makes men unwilling to provoke others. It is a person who is not easily provoked or offended. It is opposed to angry resentments and peevishness or spitefulness and crankiness, sourness of temper. I don't know how all the children are that are here this morning, but I know a little bit about children in our home and sometimes... There can be a bit of sourness of temper. It's not pretty. It's a whole lot uglier in adults. And you see it there sometimes too. It's really ugly in those professing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Meekness is the strength of character to hold back what could be said because it won't promote good. So the attitude of glory is meekness. The attitude of glory is long-suffering, he says, with long-suffering. It suffers long. That should be really obvious from the word. What, this is what love does. It won't give up. It won't quit on a person. 
It includes the patient bearing of injuries without seeking revenge. If you have been in the church for any length of time, you understand that it's still possible for Christians to hurt each other. For Christians to say things sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally that don't feel very good. Long-suffering is the idea of this, this attitude, this heart presence where we are willing to bear under that so we don't destroy glory in the church. Then he says, finally, in this attitude of glory, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing, forbearance is the idea of enduring flaws and weakness. Even a willingness to quickly forgive. It refuses to tally wrongs or to build a case proving the vileness of a brother or sister. This is rooted in the absolute truth that there is much in me that is hard to forgive, that I constantly need the forbearance of others, and therefore I am also forbearing of those around me. I'm not saying this morning, and it's not to say that we overlook sin and we ignore sin, but there's a lot of things in human relationships that would be hard to define as sin that still get a little crunchy sometimes. Do we have forbearance? The attitude of glory is one of lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing one another in love. The second thing I'd like to notice this morning is in verse 3, I'm going to call it the goal of glory. The goal of glory in the church is verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep. This is putting forth much effort, all effort, in fact, for the ultimate goal. Division is easy. Unity is hard. That's just a fact. To separate and divide takes very little effort. Maintaining peace is work. Unity in the spirit is the idea of the same mind, the same purposes, the same goals. It's not okay, brothers and sisters, to go reluctantly along and then hold it inside only for it to flare up later. That's not unity. It's not keeping the unity of the Spirit. This is the oneness that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't prioritize that oneness, we will lose glory in the church really quickly. It's the bond of peace. The Bible calls us I believe it's in 1 Thessalonians, to be at peace among yourselves. Peace. Wise and happy is a church church that leans early and often, learns early and often, sorry, that it's better to maintain peace than to always be right. Peace is a glorious privilege for the Christian, and we ought to strive, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit And it's not coincidence that he talks first about an attitude and then about a goal. This goal of maintaining peace in unity in the brotherhood. Pride and contention bring division. We read that in the scriptures. Humility and lowliness bring peace. Only by pride comes contention. That's directly from Proverbs. Only by humility comes love. The more lowly-mindedness the more like-mindedness. I want you to think about that. The more lowly-mindedness, the more like-mindedness. Thirdly, I notice here next that he said, talks about the facts of glory. I wasn't sure what else to call this, but it's like he injects this 
doctrinal statement into the middle of this dialogue about what glory in the church looks like. And he says factually, there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The purpose here, the focus here is that there is one and there is only one body. There is one bride that Jesus Christ is returning for. There is one body of Christ, those who are faithfully connected to him as the head and committed to him as their Lord and focused on him as their purpose and their goal for his glory. Is there division in one? Can you divide one and still have a whole? There's obvious answers. We know this. One body, one spirit, one Lord. I thought about this. Can one spirit give us two different answers? Dividing us from one spirit. Is that possible? It doesn't work. We understand it's very simple. And yet he puts it here and and it makes it so important. We understand by this oneness that the opposite of one, divisions then, come from carnality. The scripture talks about that. There is no other way to see it. I'm not interested here in telling who's wrong on each side of every division. That's not the point. The emphasis is when there is division, you can be certain there's carnality involved, maybe on both sides, maybe in lots of places, but it doesn't come from the one Lord or the one spirit or the one faith or the one baptism. It comes from our brokenness. We saw the other night in the message when we looked at the story of Korah that divisions come when people step out of God's order and take too much on themselves. When I believe that it's not my role, when I know that it's not my role, but I still think that I could do it better, be oh so careful with that thinking. When I see two ways, my way and the other way, be certain that there is a vision problem. All right? Don't be too quick then to assume that it's the other party's problem. We ought to think carefully. I'd like to just go back into the Gospel of John for a moment. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. But in John 17, the last time that we have recorded that Jesus prays, at least in an extended prayer for the disciples and for those who would follow after him, I want to highlight the focus of his prayer here as he turns his attention to the ages ahead when there would be those who would follow him. In verse 15, he's not praying that they would be taken out of the evil, but, or out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil in the world. He says in verse 17 that he wants them sanctified through the truth. He wants them separated from the world. He talks about again in verse 18, and then I'd like to begin reading at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their words. That continues all the way to today. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How is the world going to know that Jesus is the one and only answer? One of the keys is the oneness in the body of Christ. That is a real important thing. I and them, 
Sorry, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus' earnest prayer before his Father, the last thing he brought to his Father is that we, his children, would be one so that the world will know that he is the Savior of the world. If we want glory in the church, there's got to be a focus and emphasis on oneness. The facts of glory. Back in chapter 4 of Ephesians, I'm going to look next at the means of glory. He says in verse 7 that he gives to every one of us grace. And this grace is a gift of Christ, he says. And then there's this section I'm not going to spend any time on this morning between verses 8 and 10. But his focus of this grace is actually things like he describes in verse 11, which are gifts, different talents, different offices, you could say, different abilities, different ways that we can bring beneficial uh, things into the body. These are the gifts that God gives. Some prophets, some evangelists, and so on. They're different, but they're all for one purpose. And this grace, this is given to us as a means of glory. The, the gift of grace, a gift of some ability, some talent, some usefulness in the kingdom is never given to us to elevate ourselves or to magnify ourselves or to lift ourselves up. It is always given to us simply to be used for the glory in the church, that the body would be blessed, that the body would be strengthened, that there would be greater oneness among us. And it grieves my heart how often I see someone that who may be very talented in a certain area, but uses that talent to actually bring division among the body of Christ, not to bring unity. And when we're doing that, we are, mis we are misusing and misunderstanding the gift that God has given us. I could tell you a few stories. I'm not going to take the time to do that this morning. But if your gift is causing contention in the body, reconsider how you're using your gift. It's not why God gave it. The purpose, this means of glory, the gifts that he gives the body, is so that the Holy Spirit can bring unity and blessing and glory to his body and into his church. Can the Holy Spirit give two different gifts and those gifts cause division? No. Only our misunderstanding can lead to that place. Number five, I see the work of glory here. The work of glory is in divide, in, described here in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There are simply two primary works, functions, of the church of Jesus Christ. The first function is that of perfecting the saints, completing those who profess a relationship with Christ. We start as a babe in Christ with very limited understanding of what God wants us to do, and we grow in Christ, and we grow in Christ. A lot of that growth happens because of the instruction and teaching that we encounter in the body of Christ through preaching of the Word, through Sunday school, through mentorship, on and on goes the list. But the number one goal of the church, the first thing he lists here, the most important thing that we do first and that we continue to focus on is teaching Christians 
that come to the Lord how to be faithfully walking worthily in the vocation wherewith they are called. That is the most important thing we do. The second thing then he focuses on is the work of the ministry. And maybe I won't take time to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can write the reference down. He talks about the work there, and he goes on to expand what this work of the ministry is. And he explains that it is the simple reconciliation ministry that we are all given as believers to reconcile a sinful world to a holy God. Maybe we should just take a moment and look at it. Because after all, the scripture will say it much better than I can. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, don't understand here that that's meant for your pastors and deacons and bishops, that they're the ones that have the ministry of reconciliation. No, he's given it to all of us. Our second priority, but extremely important as the church of Jesus Christ, is to teach people how to be reconciled to a holy God, how to deal with the sin problem. And we know that Jesus Christ, it goes on to say, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How are they going to know? The only way they can know is if the church of Jesus Christ makes it a priority to tell the world about the possibility of reconciliation with the Holy God. It also includes working with sinners among us and drawing them back to reconciliation. The same place, the same process where the blood of Jesus Christ is the only means in repentance that we have to reconcile ourselves to a Holy God. That is the work of this glory, the work of the church, if you will. And if I may just go back into Ephesians, I believe it's very significant that we have it in the order that it's given there. That the first priority for the church is perfecting the saints. Now that doesn't mean that you need to be perfect before you are involved in the work of the ministry or the work of reconciliation. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, perfect is not so much the idea of without any ability to sin or without ever sinning, but it is more the idea of being fully equipped, fully trained, and fully taught so that you understand how you ought to conduct your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I believe that there is a lot of confusion in the world today about what it means to be a Christian, because there's a whole lot of Christians that are focused on the work of the ministry, reconciling the world to a holy God, but have never actually learned how to walk in holiness. And you know how confusing that message is? When someone stands before you and tells you that you need to be a Christian and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior because of your sin problem, but when they look at you, they see the exact same behaviors as they have in their life and they're saying to themselves, okay, I don't get it. You know what is powerful? When a person that is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ living primarily a holy life describes to a sinner in front of them how they need something to give them the means to live a holy life. That makes sense. 
It doesn't make sense, and we see this all over the world today. We have missionaries going from North America into countries dressing immodestly and conducting their lives in all kinds of debauchery, crying out about how Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. That makes no sense. It goes nowhere. So my brothers and sisters, the reason that we have, first of all, the perfecting of the saints is because it's our responsibility to teach all believers among us how to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus. And once we do that, we can make the work of the ministry effective because it makes sense to the people we're talking to. And what does that work do? These two things, if we are perfecting, if I may, and working, then what does it do? It edifies the body of Christ. Friends, part of the problem we have in our churches, the lack of glory in our churches, is that we're so focused on bickering about things that are, shouldn't be that important. And I'm not saying that they're not important that we do them. That argument is on both sides of the fence. We're making it a big deal by refusing or resisting to do them. We're making it an issue, and we just muddle around here. Encourage people to walk holy lives. Continue to do that. And then encourage people to be focused on the needs for reconciliation around them. And when we do those things well, then the church is built up. It's such a lovely place to be. Such a meaningful place to be part of. And it gives us energy and courage to keep on going through life. That is what happens in this Work of glory is that we are building up the body of Christ. That's what edifying means. And remember, this only happens by what did Ephesians 3.20 tell us? By the power that worketh in us. That's how it happens. Number six, this morning I see the result of glory. Result of glory, I see three things here, three verses I'd like to link together. First of all, in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the result of this glory, this work, this God working in us is that we become increasingly more like Jesus Christ. We grow in Christ's likeness. The goal is that you would experience the fullness of Christ. I, I think back to my home and also my childhood days on the inside of a closet door. We had a, a chart with a tape measure. Do any of you have those? Where every birthday you put your name and how tall you are and you see that you're growing. Maybe we need one of those in the church. Up here is the fullness of Christ. The more obedient our life, the more we are growing in the fullness of Christ. And how high are you today? How much have you grown? You know how this growth happens? He gives us those answers right here in verse 13. That we come in the unity of the faith. Again, here we have this focus of unity, of coming together on their oneness. We have one holy scripture that gives us one holy way to live one holy life. And as we come closer and closer around the scriptures and in the unity of that understanding, we grow more and more like Christ. Because after all, the scriptures describe exactly what it means to live in the fullness of Christ. They give us this image of who Christ is. 
And then it says, of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I don't believe that means knowledge in the way we often think about knowledge, about facts. You can know that Jesus was born in whatever it was, AD 4 or AD 0, depends who you ask, or whether he was died in AD 33. You can know that he was a man that was never married. You can know that he was a man that never committed sins. You could know that he was a man of miracles. You could know the Sermon on the Mount by memory. You could know a lot of facts about the Lord Jesus. Not that we're talking about. This is talking about the intimate knowledge and awareness of how to follow his steps. That's what we're talking about. How to be like Jesus in the way that we live and in the way that we act. And as we become more and more aware of that knowledge, of that awareness, of that experience of walking in the footsteps of Jesus... Again, we grow more and more into the fullness of Christ. And the more fullness of Christ, the more glory in the church. The second part that happens, the result of this glory, as we grow in his likeness and grow in his fullness, we have a stability that comes into our lives in verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive There is a, what do I want to say here? We have access to more information than any generation ever in the history of mankind. That doesn't mean it's useful. There's a lot of stuff that is actually deceptive. And this may not even be intentional, but it's sleight of men. It it is like, you know what sleight of hand is, where you're doing card tricks and making it look like something disappears, but all you're doing is really quick with your hands, and you're capable of making it appear like one thing, but it's another thing. That's sleight. Sleight is the idea that even though the scriptures say clearly this, we have men today that will stand in a pulpit and say it actually means this. That's what it's talking about here. And the strength and stability that we have in our lives of understanding truth and understanding doctrine is as we unite together more and more and grow into the fullness of Christ. That brings stability into our lives. And I was just going to say earlier that I have an entire message that I have preached about the voices that we listen to in our lives. And I am deeply burdened, actually, about some of the voices that we as biblical Anabaptist people are listening to with no awareness of what they actually believe. And I'm troubled that we think somehow that even though they have this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, they can be a useful resource to us in how we should walk the Christian life. I would encourage you to spend time studying the Bible personally and talking to your brethren in this body about how to interpret the scriptures. That's where the power of understanding and the power of stability comes from. Be cautious about cunning craftiness and sleight of hand, if I may, around us. The result of glory in the church is stability. The third result of glory is in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And again, what happens when we speak the truth in love? Well, we grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking truth, I was going to say it's not that hard. Well, for some people it's hard even to speak truth. But speaking truth in love 
is a tremendous skill. And it comes from a close relationship with the Lord Jesus because that's exactly what he did. And when we can get to a place in our maturity in a Christian community, in a community of believers, where there is a welcoming of you speaking into my life, the truth in love, and where I am welcome to speak into your life, the truth in love, then the entire community is going to experience more growth and more glory because we need that, brothers and sisters, in our lives. Harsh truth is very ineffective. Lots of love with no truth is also very ineffective. The maturity of the Christian community that can honestly speak the truth in love to each other is a powerful thing. And that is the result of glory. Again, the result of the power working in us. The seventh thing and final thing I'd like to notice this morning is in verse 16. It's the closeness of glory. It struck me as I read this verse. It says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, working to the effect Oh, sorry, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. It struck me that this describes the mechanism of the body. And the, the presence of joints has one bone on another bone with some cartilage in between that makes it work a little smoother. And all of that working together so that it can be effective in doing something useful Whatever that function is, if I want to kick my leg, I better be careful or I'll be sitting down up here. But you get the point. There's a lot going on in that knee. And what struck me is that, you know what, in that, in that knee and in the body, when that is working effectively, it's a really close community. It's a really intimate relationship. And the potential for that to get messy is very, very real. The closeness of glory, actually the more we get closer and closer to Christ, that becomes even more so. And I just wonder sometimes if it isn't this closeness as we draw closer to Christ that gets us to the place where we again destroy the attitude that brings glory that we read about at the beginning of the chapter. Because I see and I know the messiness of your life. You see and know the messiness of my life. You see, obviously, things that I don't see about inconsistencies of my life. And this is what God still calls us to, to respect each other, that I trust that bone that is connected to the joint that is part of this piece of mechanism that God has created, the church, the body of Christ. I see God working in the gifts of others, yes. But do I choose to overlook their flaws, the messiness, maybe even sometimes the ugliness or the, I don't know what words to use, but they're not fully like Christ yet. Am I okay with that? If I'm not okay with that, I'm going to resist the idea of working together in that one body. And I can never really experience the work of God that intends to do in me until I accept that there is going to be this close messiness, if I can use that word again, in the community of believers in the body of Christ. And the longer that goes on with the same people in the same community, the more we are aware of it, right? We've got to accept it 
as one of the good things that God uses in the community of believers to bring about my spiritual maturity. That's one of the things God is using to work in me so that I become more Christ-like. I'd like everyone else first to be perfectly Christ-like and then I'll come along last behind. Isn't that how we want it? It's not how it happens. We're all in this together. We all have flaws. We all have brokenness. And the brokenness, the intimate awareness of that brokenness, we can easily look on as something ugly and something that should be shunned and something that should be pushed away. Don't do that. Embrace it, actually, as part of what God is doing to bring about his glory. So don't be discouraged by the humanness in your body, I mean in your congregation. It's normal and it's useful. It's the intended outcome of God's presence, the result of glory, the closeness of glory working in our body. 